Trades Work, the Rocky Mountain Mechanical Contractors Association podcast starts right now. Here's your host, Dave DeVito. Welcome back to Trades Work, where we highlight the issues important to the skilled trades our society depends on and always seeks to put Colorado first. Joining us today is Dan Haley, President and CEO of the Colorado Oil and Gas Association. Dan, welcome to Trades Work. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. It's great to have you on. I know uh, we've worked together and ran in uh, circles uh, over the years, and it's great to have you as a guest. So I know you didn't start out in oil and gas. What led you to become the head of their trade association? Yeah, I, I took a long winding path to to get into advocacy and to get into oil and gas. I was a lifelong journalist. That's what I planned to do for my entire career. I uh, worked in daily newspapers for a little over 20 years. I had no plan B. That was what I was going to do. And then as the that industry began to change and the internet took a new prominence in, in how we delivered news and advertising began to plummet, I had to look and see, what am I going to do for the next 20 years? Can I really make a career of this? And so I decided to leave newspapers in 2011 started doing some corporate communications, and then really tried to figure out how can I take this a passion in policy, politics, communications, all the things I learned in newspapers, and turn that into a career. And so I started consulting, had some oil and gas clients, including the Colorado Oil and Gas Association. Mm-hmm. And then about a year into that, the leader at that time, Tisha Schuler, was yeah. um, announced that she was leaving. She called me into her office And I thought maybe she was going to cut my contract because I didn't talk to her very often. Mm -hmm. And she said, I'm leaving. And I started formulating the the exit plan communications in my head. And she said, I've met with the search committee and you have a lot of the traits that they're looking for. I think you ought to apply for the job. And Hmm. so I thought, I don't know. This seems like a pretty difficult job, but let me give it a whirl. And through my name in the hat, progressed through the the process. and, And here I am. So a long way to get to oil and gas, but I really have learned a lot and love the people that I get to work with. That's great. Well, uh, they're lucky to have you. And I know that uh, Tisha has the respect of a lot in the community. And, you know, oil and gas as an industry has uh, kind of uh, been at uh, the focal point or under the microscope here in Colorado. I know we'll probably talk a little bit more about how uh, stringent and strict of policies that you all have worked to put in place and uh, keep Colorado beautiful. So I uh, hats off to you for that work. So talk to us about uh, your eight years in running Koga. You know, what has changed most about the industry? Yeah, it's changed a lot <clears throat> in eight years. Everything from the technology to how we communicate with communities and uh, the state. And I think that's been one of the most positive changes for me in the just in the last 10 years, how our members go out, talk to the communities where they work about what they're doing, why they're doing it, why it's important. Uh, give them a heads up as to you know when you might see truck traffic or what a, a when a rig comes in. What does that mean? And really communicate what we're doing and and why it's important. So that's been a huge growth opportunity, I think, for our industry over the past uh, eight years. Uh, we've also seen it contract quite a bit. We have fewer mm-hmm. operators out there today who are producing that resource and getting that oil and gas out of the ground. That's been sort of a, an unfortunate thing to watch happen uh, in our state. But those who are here are still very involved, very passionate about what they're doing, and again, producing this resource at a, at a high level for folks here in Colorado. 
Well, I mean, if you go through your house, everything that um, powers or heats your house, cools your house, you know, things that come into your house as far as water, your hot water heater, I mean, we depend upon, I think it is a statistic says 80% of households are powered by natural gas uh, in some form or fashion or heated, I should say, not powered. Um, and so it's it's interesting to sit back and watch. Uh, we have a lot of members who work in that space. Um, you know, compressor stations are just big HVAC systems, uh, and we do a lot of that work, and so we're grateful to be partners here. Um, so obviously we focus on the skilled trades, Dan, and oil and gas utilizes a lot of different types of jobs. How are our industries related in your mind, and, you know, what are what is the importance of the skilled trades for the oil and gas industry as a whole? The skilled trades are hugely important to to our industry. Everything from electricians and welders that are needed in the pipeline sector. Skilled labor makes up a huge portion of our workforce downstream. Uh, from the beginnings of an oil and gas site, when you're building out a pad, you require skilled labor. So I think it's a great partnership. It's something very important. One of the things that I really think is amazing is this is one of the last industries in Colorado, and you represent and talk about many of the others, but where, where you can get a high school diploma and still make a really good living in this state, buy a house, buy a car, support your family. And a lot of that comes through those skilled trades, people who work with their hands for a living. And unfortunately, I think that's a little bit endangered in mm -hmm. our state. Talk a little bit more about that. What do you think? Why? What's your perception? Not necessarily Koga's, but Dan Haley's perception of why we're in that state is why the skilled trades are looked at that way. Yeah, I think it's it's not so much skilled trades. It's anything that makes noise, makes kicks up a cloud of dust, maybe has an odor to it, mm -hmm. is under this regulatory microscope. And I think there are some people in our state who perhaps are in elected office or in a regulatory position who think we can do without and we can rely on somebody else to provide, whether that's energy or food, for us. And I think it's a danger that we're kind of sliding into in our state as we look at all these things as, when it comes to uh, greenhouse gases, emissions, ozone, all these things that we all want to see reduced, right? But when you look at the same people, the same uh, industries again and again for you know, reductions, and it just becomes very cumbersome for mm -hmm. those folks to continue to exist in our state. So we need to come to an agreement or have a, a dialogue about these jobs and why they're important to our, our state. Mm -hmm. um, skilled trades built our infrastructure, our homes, our, our highways, our pipelines, and are going to be needed for the long foreseeable future. So how do we figure out how we can continue to do this work in Colorado in ways that meet our environmental goals, mm -hmm. but allow these jobs to exist? I look at a place like Commerce City. The very name suggests that we're going to be able to work there. And even that is getting difficult in, in recent uh, years. And so we need to really evaluate where we're going as a, as a state when it comes to, I think, skilled trades, industries. Again, that I, there's probably a better way to say that, but just that kick up a cloud of dust and mm -hmm. uh, maybe ha have some noise behind it and really do that kind of manual labor. Those are great insights. You know, it takes a lot of recognition and a you know, at least an appreciation for what's possible in the trades. Uh, and I think your industry probably sees that value and sees that connection more than most because, you know, they can be a welder for you guys one day. And, you know, if there's not something for them to do, come into the construction field and apply those same skills because it's 
although maybe a circle versus a flat plate, it's the same principles and yeah. metallurgy that does that. So thank you. So let's talk a little bit about, I want to come back to something you said here in just a minute, but let's talk about deficit. In in Colorado, we face about a 50,000 skilled labor or construction worker shortage. Um, and, you know, we know that we're going to have to adopt a policy of E all the above for workforce recruitment. We know the pool is shrinking, meaning the number of students that are coming out of high school, you know, there's less babies born, and therefore the pool is smaller, and therefore, you know, we're all competing for the same resources. Um, what does the future of work look like in oil and gas development? Yeah, I think it's a great question. I think we're facing some of the same things that, that you're facing. Uh, we've seen this in our industry just over time where you'll have some kind of generational shifts mm -hmm. where there may be a downturn in oil and gas. And so people start looking at other careers. And we had a, a former governor who was a geologist who left during a downturn and, and you know, became a brew pub owner and then became yep. governor of Colorado. And so that's what we really need to avoid for are those moments where you're having the down cycle in oil and gas and trying to retain those employees, but really looking to that next generation as well for employees and being able to explain to people that particularly the oil and gas industry is a high tech, innovative, interesting, interesting industry, mm -hmm. right? And that you can do some great things uh, and you can get into things like data analytics and still get into oil and gas, right? And how, what do those jobs of tomorrow look like? Many of them are high tech. Many of them are ones, again, you deal with do with your hands and skilled labor. So I think as a state, we would we should be having that discussion right now. You know, I think we did a, ourselves a disservice by this idea that everybody has to go to college. And I understand the theory behind it, and I respect and support that. But not everybody has to go to college. Some people, we should be saying, like, what are you interested in this? Here's a great career that you can have as a plumber. How do I go about doing that? Maybe you don't need to spend all that money in a four-year school. You can go to a trade school, become a plumber, and, uh, you know, find your skills that way. And I think we can do that in this industry as well. But, again, where are we directing people as a state? How do we begin to have those discussions knowing what that workforce looks for or what it's going to look like mm -hmm. 10, 20, 30 years out? This is another piece of this, this puzzle that I think we do ourselves a disservice in thinking about what we want the world to look like in 2050 versus what we think it's going to look like based on the data that we have right now. Yeah. How do you plan for both of those things? I don't think we do a very good job of that. Yeah. Well, I think there's a lot of pressure to your point on kind of reducing the carbon output uh, or footprint. And, you know, there are industries like yours that are kind of uh, being looked to to solve for big parts of that buildings. And uh, we'll talk a minute here in electrification. You know, that's another focal point of uh, folks looking at the admission side, uh, the emissions side of things. And, you know, cars and transportation is the other kind of third prong, at least that seems to be a focal point or any kind of um, uh, combustion engine. Um, and, you know, you, you have those pressures plus the regulatory pressures, and uh, you, you've been doing this a lot longer than I have in the rulemaking space, and it's just it's a fascinating yet frustrating process uh, for sure. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit more about electrification. You know, we are a state that doesn't have water uh, necessarily for power generation, right? There may exist some pockets, so we can't really count on that. So wind and solar is looked to as the renewable source. 
Um, obviously, thermal energy. Uh, we talked prior to the show a little bit about you know some of those applications. In one of our last podcasts, we talked a little bit about uh, the National Western Center and their energy renewable. You know, from your perspective, there's downward pressure on oil and gas output um, as a source of uh, pollution. On my side of the factor, it's about buildings consuming less. Uh, or burning less. And so what do you think the overall strategy needs to be going forward from an energy purchasing or energy usage policy? We need to have realistic discussions and conversations in this state about what's possible and what's feasible. Right now we have elected leaders and regulators who are unencumbered by that fact of what's actually feasible. Electrification is a great topic. Everybody is trying to electrify. We have our, many of our members who are investing millions of dollars in the latest, greatest technology in order to electrify. But what does that mean? Mm-hmm. What are we plugging into right now? There's a great app that I would encourage your listeners to download called Electricity Maps. And it'll look anywhere in the world, and it's almost real time, maybe an hour or two lag time, and you can see where your electricity's coming from. On a good day in Colorado, when the sun's shining and the wind's blowing, up to half of your power might be from renewable sources. And then the sun goes down, that number begins to go down. When it gets very hot, very cold, that number's really low. Most of your power is provided by coal and natural gas. Mm-hmm. So when we're plugging in, are we just trading our emissions? Less emissions at the source, but more emissions someplace else. If we're burning coal, relying on coal to create the power that we're you know, relying yeah. on. So we have to really have a conversation about what's feasible. We have regulators who say we really want to see a lot of electric rigs in Colorado. We think that's important to eliminate that source emissions. Okay, well, let's talk to the power companies. Power companies might say, you can run one rig in this area. If you run two, you'll brown out our town. Hmm. Okay? Not feasible anymore. Can we get those rigs into the state? We could, but it requires stability, predictability. Outside investors need to see uh, an inventory of permits Hmm. coming from the state where the state says, this is an important industry. We're going to invest. We want that here. We want the latest, greatest, best technology. So there's some certainty, predictability. You can bring those resources into the state. So we're taking a part in all of these conversations as they relate to electricity and electrification. I think they're very important. I see you know, that's where we're moving as a state and as a country as we think about net zero. But I think we really have to think about what's beyond the socket, what's beyond where we're actually plugging these things into. How are we electrifying it, and what does that look like? Yeah, that's a wrinkle I hadn't really thought about. You know, It's come up in a couple carbon capture conversations where they want to build these big carbon capture units in Wyoming, which is also part of my uh, area or the area that we represent contractors in and and other parts of this state. And some of those carbon capture units require an an immense amount of power to be generated to run that equipment. Uh, And, you know, if if the equipment is so far down line, it it doesn't work. And I would imagine your rigs won't either. So I, I hadn't thought about that before. Well, let's talk about technology. So talk to us a little bit how that's evolved in your industry and during your time at, at uh, Koga. Yeah, it's, we are light years ahead of where we were just in the eight years that I've, I've been here. When I first started, the biggest issue at the state was noise complaints. Mm-hmm. And, you, and you saw the innovation happening here in the DJ in Colorado. Uh, Liberty Halliburton began pioneering these quiet frack fleets, right? So you automatically begin to lose that as a, an issue that you have to deal with. We also went from drilling from 27 to 30 days to basically drill a well to three days. 
right now. Mm. And we have guys that are, you know, drilling a mile down, turning that bit, going two, three, four miles uh, horizontally, sometimes remotely, right? We've been trained to believe that Amazon is this high-tech company out there, right? And what happens with Amazon? Go on a computer, that's high-tech, order a book, some guy in a warehouse walks over, takes it off the shelf, puts it in the box, puts it on a truck, and they drive it to our house. And we think of that as a high-tech company, yet we have folks drilling remotely through four miles of hard rock and hitting a target within a couple inches. Hmm. That's a high-tech company. So there's a lot of really cool things happening. There are walking rigs now where you drills a hole, and then it'll move to the next spot and drill another hole versus having to disassemble the entire rig and take it down, which would take five to seven days yeah. in the past. So it's been an amazing kind of light-speed changes in technology, which allow us to produce this resource cleaner, better, and safer than most anywhere on the planet and allow us to get in and out of areas where they may be concerned about disturbances. Hmm. That's fascinating. I had not realized. I knew that there were, I knew the directional drilling or horizontal drilling exists, but I didn't realize that you can go several miles. Yes. That's fascinating. Yeah. So for young people considering their discerning their career paths or people who have decided that they want to stop doing whatever they're doing because it's either not challenging or not there's not enough room for advancement. Well, what's what's possible in your industry? For yeah, I think folks? yeah, it's a it's a great question, and I, I've touched on it a little bit. And I think part of that is just this idea of the high tech, innovative things that are happening in industry, and we don't do a good enough job of talking about that. Trying to get the next generation interested, that generation that's interested in science technology, math, letting them know there's going to be a future here. We're going to be developing this resource in, in the United States, I hope, for the long foreseeable future. The world's mm -hmm. definitely going to need it. It's a decision of where we're going to get it from. Do we mm -hmm. want to get it from the United States, from Colorado, or other countries? And so I think it's a matter of, of really educating young people, getting them excited about the possibilities that exist in terms of you know jobs that'll be here. This is definitely not you know, your father's oil and gas industry, your grandfather's oil and gas industry. And I think we, we just don't do a good enough job of getting that across to people. Okay. And I think we also live under this false assumption that we're going to go to this all-renewable future tomorrow. And for the history of mankind, we've never had an energy transition, with the exception of whale oil, mm -hmm. right? That's the only thing we don't really use anymore. Otherwise, we just add more to the mix. And so we're going to continue to need this product for the long foreseeable future. So we have to get back again to these realistic, reasonable conversations about where we're going as a country and as a, as a state so people understand this is still going to be around. It's a viable career for you. Yeah. I mean, and folks who, you know, are in homes trying to cook for their families, you know, having one heat source and now having to go to a, a completely different heat source for that, especially in, you know, today's market where there's such pressure on housing prices, you know, I would imagine it has folks kind of worried about or um, kind of tempering their uh, concerns a bit, uh, but more importantly, focusing on, okay, if my house has to go through an upgrade where I take out my gas stove, my gas fireplace, my HVAC units, your furnace, uh, your hot water heater to, you know, at some magical point in the future and replace it all, that's got to be a pretty daunting hill for them to look at. I've seen figures anywhere between twenty to $30,000. Uh, which is a lot of money, right? Mm -hmm. And when we talk about energy, where it really hits people are the most vulnerable among us, the mm -hmm. people out there who are deciding whether they're going to buy groceries, buy medicine, pay their rent, or pay their utility bill. So we have to be really careful about that. When we have these sort of dreams about this utopian world and what it might look like, we have to talk about what the cost is going to be. 
And what's the cost is going to be to the most vulnerable among us? And the other piece of this that never gets talked about is those one to two billion people on the planet that don't have any access to energy right now yeah. at all, who deserve the same right to energy that we've had over the last 100 years. Yeah. So we have uh, we are a partner with Energy Outreach Colorado. Uh, many in the oil and gas industry support them. I saw something today; it came across my desk in their newsletter, where the demand for for grants uh, for their constituencies up over twenty five percent year over year, uh, year to date. And I think your point is spot on. You're having to decide how you're going to deploy your assets or your 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 money at home right. uh, to keep things going. So. Well, thanks for those insights, Dan. You know, a lot of people hear negative stuff about oil and gas. You turn on the radio and you hear about how, you know, this neighbor complained about that rig or something happened in that neighborhood or the unfortunate situations up north. Those are, um, I would guess, a very, very small amount uh, or the exceptions to and not the norm for the industry. I think you guys are at the table uh, at almost every community event trying to be good partners. So how do you how do you help cut through all of that? And how do you help tell the next generation that, you know, oil and gas production is good, good for the state? What do, what do you say to those listeners? Th- that's the key, right, is, is getting out there and having those conversations with people and letting them know, one, that this is a necessary resource and that we're going to need it for the long foreseeable future. And two, we're doing it, as I say, cleaner, better, and safer than most anywhere on the planet. During COVID, we set out to determine if we were producing the cleanest energy molecules on the planet because of all the different technologies and innovations that have taken place here in Colorado and this very strong regulatory structure we have. We have this most stringent environmental rules in the world. And so we couldn't say definitively that these are the cleanest energy molecules on the planet, so we say they're among the cleanest energy molecules. And that's really something I think that we can be proud of. In Colorado, our, our operators meet a very high standard to work here. So that's mm-hmm. important for, for Coloradans to know and that we're, we can do that and produce this here in Colorado. But there are people out there who don't want this product to ever leave the ground. And we need to have, again, those conversations so people understand what's at stake. You talked about the high energy costs that people faced. Last winter, energy bills went, were high for everybody. And that was for a lack of supply and what was happening in Europe with the invasion of of Ukraine by Russia, right? So we needed to supply more natural gas. The United States stepped up and did that. We sent that gas to Europe, saved the continent of Europe, which did not have the gas that they needed to get through the winter. But now we need to do that for everybody here as well so we can have a good supply and bring those prices down. I guess I didn't realize that. Uh, It makes sense, though. I mean, the geopolitical risk, I think, is one that uh, we ought to be thinking about here locally and being able to solve for that. So you talked about uh, the assets not leaving the ground. It hit my radar that there's a ballot initiative, a citizen-based initiative for 2024 as election year, where it it contemplates you know halting all oil and gas operations or permits uh, by some number. Well, why don't you talk a little bit about what that is and what your thoughts are on that? So there's a measure that's being proposed for the 2024 ballot that would phase out oil and gas permits by the year 2030, if approved by voters. I'm uh, hopeful and confident that Coloradans will reject that, just as they did in 2018 when there was a similar ballot measure, which would have ended the oil and gas industry almost immediately in 2018 when that measure uh, went. And and Colorado voters stood 
with the oil and gas industry, and I'm confident they'll do that again. Again, this is about costs and hurting consumers. If we're not here producing this resource in Colorado, that will lower supply, demand will remain high, mm-hmm. and costs will go up. Colorado is the fifth largest producer of oil in the country and the seventh largest natural gas producer. Mm-hmm. We have the second largest natural gas reserves in the Peons Basin and the Western Slope. So again, we can be a part of that answer to climate, be a part of the answer to the supply problem, but we have to get the product out of the ground. And so I'm hopeful that Coloradans will see straight through that. It's a gimmick and a ploy by some extreme environmental activists to end the oil and gas industry. They start in Colorado and they take that message and actions into other states. And again, it is not where we need to be going as a country. Yeah. It it just occurs to me that there's aspirational goals and what's doable and where those two intersect is where we should be focusing on versus this this complete aspirational focus and and that's a that's a concept and a series of words that I stole from a colleague of mine so I, I don't want to I don't want to market trademark it as my own but um, it just it seems like aspirationally I get the the push but the reality is we can't build a carbon curtain around Colorado uh, and much of what we have here and measure here is coming here from other parts of the country. We produce uh, 0.23% of global greenhouse gases here in Colorado. Less than one quarter of one percentage point come from Colorado. We're not going to solve climate change from Colorado. But what we've done as a state and as a country is we've punted our environmental issues to other parts of of the world. We've said we don't want to build anything here anymore because of the environmental impacts. We've asked China and India to do it for us. Mm-hmm. I'll recommend another app called Windy, W-I-N-D-Y. It's a website or an app. You can go on and see real time how the wind is blowing. You can put different filters on it to see where the pollution's coming from. The interior west, not a lot of pollution. The coastlines where there are more people in the United States, more Europe, more India, China, big black splotches. We've asked them to make our stuff for us, and then they ship it overseas. We shouldn't be surprised when that environmental problem blows right into our state. Hmm. Really, really great insights, Dan. I appreciate all your time and effort and you advocating for the industry uh, because it's probably a thankless job at times. (laughs) It it can be difficult, but it's gratifying because I believe in what we do. Good. All right. Softball question or out of left field, I should say. Uh, So Dan Haley probably didn't grow up. Uh, in second or third grade going, I am going to be the executive director or president CEO of Koga. What what was your aspirational goal then? No, I did not want to do this at all. I never even dreamed of it when I was a little kid. When I was really little, that in second grade, I probably wanted to be a football player, a stuntman or something cool like that. And then ultimately, I did want to be a journalist when I was in high school. That became mm. my, my life's goal and what I wanted to do when I, when I grew up. Well, you're not too far away from that. <laughs> All right. Well, folks, that concludes our show today. Dan, thanks for being here. Yeah, thank you for having Um, me. Thanks for tuning in and uh, joining us today. Stay tuned for more industry insights, news, and information about the women and men building our communities, building our skylines, and building our future. Tradeswork is a production of the Rocky Mountain Mechanical Contractors Association. For more information about our organization, please visit rmmca.org.